0: Everyone, My name is Autumn Wilkie, and I'm a host with the New Books Network. Today we're joined by Dr. Joel Michael Reynolds, who will be discussing his new book, The Life Worth Living, Disability, Pain and Morality. Joel Michael Reynolds is an assistant professor of philosophy and disability studies at Georgetown University, senior research scholar in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, senior bioethics advisor to the Hastings Center, faculty scholar of the Greenwall Foundation and core faculty in Georgetown's disability studies program. He is the founder of the Journal of Philosophy of Disability and co-founder of Oxford Studies in Disability, Ethics, and Society from Oxford University Press. Dr. Reynolds' work explores the relationship between bodies, values, and society. He is especially concerned with the meaning of disability, the issue of ableism, and how philosophical inquiry into each might improve the lives of people with disabilities and the justness of how institutions ranging from, medicine, ranging from medicine to politics. These concerns lead to research across a range of traditions and specialties, including philosophy of disability, applied ethics, especially biomedical ethics, public health ethics, tech and data ethics, and LC research in gen- genomics ooh, pronunciation, 20th century European and American philosophy with an emphasis on phenomenology and pragmatism as practiced in connection with the history of philosophy and social epistemology, particularly issues of epistemic injustice as linked to social ontology. Joel, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise with our listeners of the New Books Network.
1: It's a delight to be here. I love the NBN, and uh, I'm so excited to chat with you.
0: Amazing. Well, I, I loved reading The Life Worth Living, um, and so I'm excited to get to spend some time uh, talking with you about it um, and really learning more um, even beyond what was within the text itself in terms of uh, having a dialogue with you. Uh, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what led you to write The Life Worth Living?
1: Yeah, in many ways, this book is is highly personal. Certain parts of it, it might not seem obvious when I'm like diving into the history of philosophy or, or making certain sorts of technical arguments, but But my my life has been fundamentally shaped by experiences of disability as far back as I can remember. My brother was born, my younger brother, Jason was born with cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy and hydrocephalus. And he was my best friend. And because of the sort of body mind he had, he required care for most things. And I was one of his primary caretakers and he lived a very good full life up until, unfortunately, he passed away around the age of 23 in 2012. But it was very hard for us as a family to care for him because of social, political uh, issues, because of all sorts of things that I, I wanted the book in some ways to be a testament to his life, both the, the goodness and the complexity, but also the hard stuff, a lot of which was just environmental or questions of kind of uh, fitting or misfitting with a society that uh, I think and I try to show in the book is fundamentally ableist. Uh, and I could keep going with this. So it's not just my brother, Jason. because also my mom became disabled when I was a little bit older through chronic pain. I was a caretaker uh, in, at varying levels for my grandparents um, on both sides of the family who had age related impairments and Uh, Had things relating had issues relating to things like cancer, and then of course, as as happens to so many people, (laughs) uh, I ended up myself disabled through uh, psychological and kind of psychiatric things later, and all of that, all of those experiences, uh, family members' personal experiences, I think led me to a place where I really wanted to explore using the tools of the history of philosophy and using the tools of phenomenology in particular, explore why this idea that life may not be worth living if, if you are disabled, why it has existed for so long, why it's still so rampant, uh, why it's still so um, common in, in many ways. It's still a very common idea. And it just, all of my experiences suggested that's just wrong. Like life is very much worth living with all sorts of disabilities. Um, and so the project tries to just take that that issue head on and see what happens if we dig in.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for giving that sort of you know complex insight into into sort of where the the emotion behind the book also came in in in, in pieces because um, that's certainly something that I felt as I was reading it and and getting some of that insight. Uh, so you alluded to this, but much of your work, um, including The Life Worth Living, is at the intersection of philosophy and disability studies. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about philosophy of disability as an area of inquiry and scholarship? Um, what, what constitutes philosophy of disability?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So disability studies, of course, is quite old. Um, depending upon who you ask, it's going to be dated to either the late 70s or early 80s. And disability studies from the very beginning was multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. And of course, today, you can find people who are doing disability studies or have a disability studies approach in almost every field in the humanities and social sciences. Philosophers, as is so often the case, were a little slow to take up (laughs) important issues and to uh, to, yeah, to, to just catch up on things. And so lo and behold, philosophers didn't really start taking disability as a phenomenon seriously until the 90s. And there's people like uh, figures like Eva fetter uh Susan Wendell. Uh, you have a number of people who start building out a set of analyses and a set of inquiries and research programs that are focused specifically on disability in a a more kind of capacious sense that people from disability studies would recognize, but it didn't really fully explode as a field. You know, it was, it, it slowly grew, I would say through the nineties and the aughts, but by the time 2010, 2011, 2012 comes around, now we start to get an almost a deluge of work being done inside of philosophy as an academic field and across the board so whether you're uh, analytically trained and you're really interested in metaphysics you're getting some people talking about disability whether you're continentally trained and the main thing you like talking about is i don't know french philosophy from 1964 forward you get people talking about disability and now fast forward to today 2022 and there is you know there are pieces coming out in philosophy journals on disability almost every single day, but certainly every single week. Now there's a journal of the philosophy of disability, which I am very um, happy to have founded, and I get to co-edit with Teresa Blankmeyer-Burke, who's amazing. So it's been a slow and steady growth, but now the field is, I think, really taking off. And honestly, I'm extremely excited about its future. I think that it offers certain unique things that other pockets of disability studies can't offer just for methodological and disciplinary reasons. And it also continues to um, engage with disability studies, learn from disability studies. And so there's a a really beautiful kind of synergy happening that I just think is good for everybody. It's just good for scholarship period.
0: Yeah. Have you seen some of that same reciprocal back and forth where disability studies is beginning to learn from philosophy as well?
1: Yes, I am seeing that more and more. I think, you know, if you're looking at places like Disability Studies Quarterly, you know, considered the kind of primary journal in the field, you're seeing more and more uptake and engagement with more specific philosophy of disability work, and that that really excites me. And I just hope that that continues as um, as things progress.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that that's a really interesting thing as somebody who also studies disability seeing the ways that it's just getting more and more expansive as we really become collaborative across a variety of fields and as fields become more aware of disability. Uh, Yeah, and
1: disability, uh, as of course everyone in the field knows, but I think this is always worth repeating, it is such a complex phenomenon. It is just wildly complex. And I think you're not going to be able to do justice to something this complicated, unless you have multiple modes of inquiry, unless you have multiple methodological tools, unless you have people with all sorts of, you know, different insights, we need a pluralistic approach. And the more pluralistic and kind of, um, and the more collaborative we can be, I think it's just going to be better for the sort of work that can be produced. uh, And hopefully all leading towards making the world more, just and less ableist.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Which I think is a really great leading into my next question, where you really open the book by talking about ableist conflations of disability to pain, suffering, deficit. And and I'm wondering uh, if you can share a little bit about why understanding those ableist conflations was really important for a greater understanding of disability.
1: Yeah. So the ableist conflation in some ways is the central concept of the book. And on the one hand, I'm you know proud to have coined that term. And on the other hand, I'm saying something that disability studies scholars and disabled activists and just disabled people have pointed out like forever. <laughs> like this is not new. It's just a way of hopefully in a very clear and concise manner, naming what I take to be the central obstacle to the study of disability, which is a presumption that disability is in some way necessarily linked to pain and or suffering or disadvantage. Uh, A different way of framing this, but I think it's more or less the exact same insight, in Elizabeth Barnes's landmark book, uh, the minority body which came out in 2016 from oxford university press she refers to what she calls bad difference views of disability right these are views that to be disabled is to be bad that is a bad thing it is a difference that is negative in some way and you see this across the history of the western intellectual tradition you see this idea i think across the history of of most eastern intellectual traditions too though that does get a bit more complicated and I wanted to name the problem. And then instead of saying, as is understandable, but instead of saying, as some people will do, that's obviously wrong, let's move on. I wanted to take that problem really seriously. And I wanted to ask the question if this is so obviously wrong to someone like me with my disability experiences, if this is so obviously wrong to so many disabled people, why has this been thought and held as a, as a, way of understanding the, these very fundamental things about human life. Why has this been thought for so long and why does it keep holding on? I feel like there's a grip, like it's like a death grip of an idea that just won't go away. And the, the, the goal of the book, I mean, you really don't get the punchline, honestly until the conclusion um, I tried to write it so that each chapter stands alone, but the real hit comes at the end where I say the ultimate problem is not merely how we conceptualize disability it's not merely how we conceptualize pain and suffering it's how we conceptualize ability it's the fact that most people's understanding of the i can is wrong it's individualistic and it's just uh to use a more technical term it's ontologically inaccurate it's an inaccurate description of the nature of of what ability is and until we have a more radical understanding of what it even is to be able, not to mention to not be able, until that more radical understanding comes about, I think the ableist conflation will continue to have, its, um, <laughs> have, a, have a sort of uh, uh, death grip on common sense understandings of disability
0: yeah well and that you know that even the way that you just described that makes me think uh, in a different way than when I was reading the book even like about the ways that that connects to our societal sort of emphasis on independence as opposed to interdependence and really kind of thinking about you know what does it mean what, what what does it fundamentally mean to be human in a community as opposed to sort of like this idea of like we all exist in our own individual box and so
1: absolutely absolutely and that's why you know the final chapter which in some ways chapter six is, is the most personal. I, I uh, share a lot of very personal details about my own life and my family life. And I try and give a, a picture of how when one pays close attention to the nature of everyday interactions and the nature of, and I think this, I use my family as my own example, but I honestly think this would pan out to be true for anyone listening to this. You'll realize the level of interdependency and the level of nested relationships upon which we rely every single moment of every single day from the quality of the air we're breathing, which is a result of decisions made by often thousands of people across years, uh, from the food that we're able to eat, from the, the emotional state we're in, you name it. None of this stuff is merely a question of what is in my brain whether I think of that as the gray matter, none of this stuff is a question of what is in my body or what is merely a possibility in my body. It's all a question of interdependence and interrelationality. And I think that ability understood in this way, which I somewhat provocatively refer to ability understood as access, which is a slight variation on some of the ways that disability Society scholars talk about accessibility, because um, I'm trying to make it almost an ontological thing, like what it is to be human is a question of accessibility in an environment. That's literally the nature of humanity. That that I think that shift I I find to be one of the most radical ways of reimagining the meaning of human, in certainly in modern history, but maybe in, in all history. And just to 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 bring that point to a a head, I don't think societies based on liberty or equality will ever be just because we need societies based upon care, we need societies based upon equity, not equality, and we need societies based upon uh, a solidarity that it assumes interdependence. Um, and by the way, that I'm including there, I don't mean to limit this merely to the human. So I'm in, I would absolutely include non-human animals, uh, land, uh, ecosystems, you name it, in that more kind of radical envisioning of how we should be setting up the world and how we should be thinking about it if we're interested in thinking about it accurately <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah we can't be independent interdependent with just each other because we are so reliant on our environment and the world and and how we care or don't care for that that planet earth so
1: and disability studies has been moving in a more kind of let's say for years now, more disability studies scholars have been attuned to the relationship with uh, questions of the environment and non-human animal life, but I still think there's farther to go. I think especially there, there needs to be more intersections uh, between, say, disability studies and work being done in indigenous studies. There needs to be a lot more with disability studies and climate change research. All that stuff, though, is on the docket right now and on many people's minds, and I'm excited to see the books and Analyses and work being done—that's all—all um, all should come out quite soon. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and, and you know, this actually makes me think about um, some of the, the the pieces that are in your bio, and and really the relationship in the work that you're doing between disability studies and bioethics. And I'm wondering if there's more pieces that you kind of want to talk about about that relationship. Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a a very um, proud bioethicist in the sense that I'm a card-carrying bioethicist. I find that the field although not imperfect, like every single uh, field. But I find that the field has a lot of promise. And I think that the historical antagonism, which makes perfect sense, uh, but the historical antagonism that you see between uh, numerous pockets of disability activism and even disability studies with biomedicine and bioethics, I think that that antagonism, which was right for a time, we're now in a different stage of things. And bioethics is increasingly opening up to direct engagement with disability studies. There's more space being made um, and more work being done by uh, disability bioethicists, right? Ones who are, you know, clinicians. They're, li- they're literally in the clinic wearing the white jacket with working with uh, medical teams and they are bringing to the table a perspective that is rooted in the lived experiences of, of disabled people that is rooted in political, social, economic sensitivity to those needs. And even though it's, you know, it's not enough, don't get me wrong. Like we need way more disability bioethicists, but I am excited to see the field uh, moving in this direction because the reality is bioethics is not going anywhere. Modern biomedicine is not going anywhere short of a complete revolution that destroys the majority of of modern industrial nations, which of course is possible. But short of that, these institutions are are central. Public health is only getting stronger as I think a mode of governance. And so I'm excited to be increasingly in a position to try and make these uh, uh, sets of practices that are presumably already geared toward trying to make people's lives better And in the public health realm, explicitly geared also towards questions of equity and justice, very explicitly geared that way, trying to make sure that uh, the concerns of disabled people, the experiences, the insights, the research rooted uh, uh, from disability experiences is part of that effort. And I see a lot of promising. I was much more pessimistic about this a decade ago for lots of boring reasons. And I've seen a lot of changes. Even COVID is actually, uh, let me give a very concrete example. Right after, within the first four to six weeks after the world shut down in March uh, 2020, a number of, I'll focus on the states, but this is also true of stuff that was happening in the UK and and Australia, a number of uh, um, policies came out that were explicitly ableist, especially ableist against people with intellectual disabilities, you know, saying, oh, of course, they're not going to get ventilators or something like this. And oh my God, the, the speed of a response by groups of bioethicists, some of whom had never even written about disability, but they're jumping on writing teams. They're, they're jumping on white papers saying, this is wrong. This is the way we need to do this approach. It was extremely encouraging the the speed, but also the, the level of concerted effort on the part of so many medical professionals and bioethicists to fight against this. And just by, with that one example, I take that as a sign that things are moving finally in the right direction. Um, and I have hope that bioethics will continue to make space for disability bioethics and will root itself in, in disability experience.
0: Oh, well, even that example you were just sharing, um, you know, thinking back to March 2020, um, that right there kind of comes back to what you were talking about uh, in the very opening of your book of ableist conflations and and the life worth living um, in terms of decision making that was happening. and. Um, And so, you know, I think kind of turning back to the book a little bit, uh, you organized it into three sections, focusing on pain, disability, ability, um, and then envisioning of an anti-ableist future. Um, What does or might an anti-ableist future look like? Um, And has your envisioning uh, evolved since you wrote the book?
1: Yeah, I I do think it has evolved a bit. I think my vision of an an anti-ableist future is very much in line with the sort of future that often goes under the the design heading of universal design. I think that universal design as a method and also as a kind of framework, a vision for how we should be constructing, literally constructing um, the world is about as good as we could possibly get in terms of an ideal. Um, And one of the things I like about universal design as a framework is that it is not merely ideal, right? So just to double down on this idea that it's a, this is about constructing the world. This is about the materiality of our our built environment and also the materiality slash immateriality of our social environments. And when I, you know, in that final chapter, when I kind of, and also in the conclusion, when I kind of give the punchline that ability understood not as something that individuals have, but ability understood in terms of accessibility, uh, that that should be the ground floor, that should be the touchstone, that should be the central value or insight from which we have to build this future. I think one of the things that I've been I would probably write it a little bit differently now. Um, And one thing I do think that has changed is... the. Well, let me back up for a second. Uh, I'm very taken by uh, Talila A. Lewis's definition of ableism. I assume many people listening to this podcast are already familiar with it. If you Google T-A-L-I-L-A Lewis and then the word ableism, it should be the first thing or second thing that shows up in Google um, Scholar. One of the things that I've been very impressed by with Lewis's uh, uh, both intellectual work and, and practical work on the ground with other disability activists is the way that Lewis points out how ableism as a problem, as a problem that is saturated throughout uh, the world, is inextricably linked with racism as a problem, with sexism as a problem, with cis-sexism as a problem, with, you know, we can go through... Uh, any number of other ways of identifying prejudicial slash discriminatory slash oppressive systems based upon some sort of uh, uh, social uh, marker. It seems to me that ability understood as access is an entry point to thinking holistically uh, and thinking truly intersectionally in the, you know, Crenshaw's original sense of the term, not the watered down shit that uh, you know ends up in the popular media. The real sense of intersectionality, I think, ability as access provides a really radical foundation for that sort of future. And I'll make it more concrete. In some ways, it's 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 uh, it's almost a Marxist idea what one is or is not able to do and what one should or should not be able to do is at the end of the day, a question of the polis, a question of society. We set up the world such that certain things are valued, certain activities are valued, certain ways of being are valued, um, certain forms of expression are valued. We set it up such that some are valued and some are not. And we can't, we just point of fact could set up a world where no matter what sort of body mind you have, your basic needs are met. Right? That is, there is, (laughs) aside from uh, uh, evil and greed and all the negative things in the world, um, we could do that. The resources are already there. And even I think the structures are already there, but we need, we need uh, more political will to do it. We're going to need, an unbelievable amount of organizing on a level we've never seen. I think climate change is making it so clear that um, the current setup of our world is fundamentally unable to deal with global level problems. And I view so many of the basic access issues that people face, especially in the global South, but by no means only in the global South, these are global problems, right? The fact that what is it? 2 billion people on earth live on less than $1 a day. That is not merely a, a a lottery issue that uh, it's unlucky. You were born in a particular part of the world. It's because of a history of colonialism that has extracted uh, uh, material resources from the global South, taken them to the global North, set up a financial system that makes sure that the money continues funneling into like, you know, the moment you take a longer historical analysis, uh, you see that this so many of the problems we're facing are fundamentally global in scale because colonialism and capitalism are global phenomenon. Anyway, now I'm getting really off the rails. How did I get onto? Yes. Okay. Ability is access. Yes. Ability understood as access, I think, is a way of re-envisioning the world. And I, uh, I think it's a different way of stating something that disability activists have been fighting for, whether it's Paul Hunt in the UK, whether it's Judy Human and Ed Roberts in the United States. I think this has been what the fight has always been about. Um, and I hope that at minimum, my book kind of gave one more volley, one more attempt at showing why that is the world we need to be fighting for. We must be fighting for uh, if we care about justice and equity.
0: Yeah. Well, and can you say a little bit more about how breaking the book into the three sections really helps to frame or envision, get us towards thinking about that anti-ableist future?
1: Yes, yes. The, I spent way too much time thinking about the structure of the book. Um, it's, it's uh, uh, I did not see that coming, but lo and behold, in some ways, the, the ordering of the parts um, has every bit as much meaning as the content <laughs> of each of the parts, because I wanted to lead the reader I wanted to lead a reader who can feel the intuitiveness of the ableist conflation. And I think that many readers who have never been exposed to disability studies do feel that idea that disability is linked with pain, suffering and disadvantage. They do feel it to be intuitive. I wanted to lead them through thinking through each of the component parts of the ableist and experiencing in some limited sense through the tools of phenomenology each of those components such that by the time they truly dug into it they come out on the other side and see that every single aspect of the ableist conflation its conception of uh, its implicit conception of disability its implicit conception of pain and suffering and even its implicit conception of ability all of those are wrong all of those concepts are four, <laughs> way, way more complicated than first meets the eye. Um, and it's only through that kind of, I think, really digging into the phenomenon, breaking it down and letting the reader sit with it that I think you can get to the end and see why, um, why ability is access is both needed, but also a really radical rethinking of some very basic concepts that I think are part of almost every single human life's basic kind of lexicon of ways of carving up um, the world. Uh, so the three sections are supposed to try and do my very best at, at being uh, uh, sensitive to readers' intuitions and yet lead them to, at the end of the day, a kind of deconstructive moment of like, wow, these things are way more complex uh, than you might realize.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, as you were going through them, um, you really paired those theoretical understandings of pain, of disability and ability, um, then with the phenomenology of lived experience. And um, as you were sort of thinking about pairing those two together, you know, uh, what talk us through a little bit how you were sort of hoping that that would really get your readers from the ableist conflation, really understanding it to an anti-ableist envisioning.
1: I'm really glad you asked that question. I One of the things that was most difficult about this project was figuring out what I wanted to do methodologically. You know, the philosophy offers lots of tools. So many disciplines, whether the humanities or social sciences, they give you all sorts of different tools to analyze things. But if if my goal for the book is to try and convince a reader who finds the ableist con, you know conflation intuitive, Well, how do I go about that? And honestly, uh, this is very dorky, but it's true. I took inspiration from Aristotle because for those who have read the Nicomachean Ethics, you might remember that he just starts by saying like, hey, so here's what we're going to talk about. What do people say? Like, what do people say about this thing? And then he moves to, but is that really true of the thing? And that's kind of the whole uh, movement of his analysis. And I love that. I just love this idea that, if we're gonna do a good philosophical inquiry, especially about a phenomenon that's just central to life, why don't we start with what people say about it? Let's let's give an account of you know what people tend to think about it, and then let's contrast the quote unquote theories <laughs> with what appears when we really pay careful, close attention to the actual experience in question. And phenomenology, I do think. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I do love ethno methodology. There are methods that focus on first person lived experience that I think are valuable, but I adore phenomenology as a method. Cause I do think it, it will, it allows you to pull out more general structures from particular experiences. And that was one of the things I really wanted to do is let me give you a particular case of disability. Let's say something like multiple sclerosis using phenomenology. Can we gain some insight about the nature of disability full stop? And of course, at the end of, what chapter is that? Chapter three? Whatever chapter that is, I say yes and no. There are some general things you see, but also the particularity of that case uh, is going to restrict uh, the level of generality uh, we can uh, make claims at. Anyway, the movement from theory to experience—I uh, take it from Aristotle. I think it's also just a basic phenomenological idea that you start with kind of how things. Ap- appear and how they appear is always going to be inflected by theories. And that's also why, uh, for at least part of the phenomenological tradition, uh, a final moment methodologically has to be destruction, has to be going back to the beginning, quite literally starting over after you've deconstructed, broken apart um, the original concepts or understandings or descriptions you started with. Uh, And on that vision of phenomenology, there is never a final word about any analysis of of any phenomenon because it's an ongoing enterprise. It's it's an inquiry that will never have a final point. And again, I'll give one more nod to Aristotle. That's how he ends the Nicomachean ethics. The final line is, uh, let us begin again from the beginning. (laughs) Or let us start again from the beginning. I should not mess this up. I have it tattooed in Greek on my arm. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I think you know one of the things that really jumped out to me was your you know in chapter two I think it's chapter two when you're when you're talking about the phenomenology of chronic pain and and sharing some of like the the daily experience um, I think it was of your mother right that you were you were sharing in there, you know I I think something that really jumped out to me was the way that that so. Vividly can help it, you know, sort of challenge even ideas of time of space, of, you know, of all of these ways that we think about being um, and, and that was just a really powerful sort of part for me as I was reading through it
1: Yes, uh, this is uh, Yet another reason why I'm, I'm so fond of phenomenology is that when it's done. Well, it, you you learn things about the nature of experience full stop um, Whether it's time whether it's space whether it's the nature of the social, the human, you know, whatever it might be um, a good phenomenology can provide these profound ontological insights to use, uh, again, the more kind of technical term. And it can get those out of a careful attention to just how we experience things, how we find ourselves in the world. Uh, And there's something profoundly humble about the method uh, in that sense, because Whatever claims you end up making about those large general things, they're still fundamentally indexed to, well, this is how I, how I think it goes, or this is how I experience my pain. And so it still has to be, um, even those larger kind of, Hey, I learned something about temporality. Uh, it's still going to be indexed to interpersonal kind of communication and intersubjective discourse and all of this stuff. Because your phenomenological your phenomenological account is only as good as uh, the accuracy of your description is relative to others who are listening to you describe whatever it is, whether it's pain, disability, the nature of consciousness, you know, uh, you name it. Yeah, so you can tell I'm, I'm a really dyed in the wool phenomenologist. Uh, that is really the kind of first philosophical tradition I fell in love with, and honestly, the the longer I I do academic work in philosophy, the more I'm like, yeah, I dig this. It's just cool. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely tell like that it, it, it is a, an area, not just like an area of inquiry that's passionate for you, but like that, like that, that, the, the practice itself of phenomenology, like, like, yeah. Yes. Um, it,
1: yes. It's a, pra- it's not just a, 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 a like method or a tradition. It very much is a lived practice. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that. That's, I think that's totally right.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, as as I was reading the book, you know, you're you're really showing how those phenomenologies, the the various phenomenologies that you pair with the theories, how they can help disrupt sort of the ways that the ableist conflation exists within some of the theories or the theories are pushing against. Um, were there were there places where you encountered limitations of phenomenology in being able to address the ableist conflation?
1: Yes, one of the very old, very very old critiques of phenomenology comes from people in the um, uh, Frankfurt critical theory school. There's critiques from all sorts of directions. That happens with any philosophical tradition because if we don't disagree with each other, you know, no one will keep giving us paychecks. So (laughs) one of the issues that I think phenomenology does run up against is that the anchoring in lived experience can get in the way of broader kind of systems level analyses. You know, a phenomenology... A, a, someone who is just, you you know, a full-blown Heserlian or Heideggerian or Merleau-Pontian, I don't see them ever being able to produce a book like Capital, like Marx's Capital. I don't see them ever being able to produce a piece of research uh, like Audre Lorde's it's, it's Sisters Outsiders. I'm wrong. Yes. I don't see them ever being able to uh, produce a piece of research like that. And I can go through a number of other examples where phenomenology is really good at certain things. It is not good at certain other things. Um, and There is, interestingly, inside of phenomenology, there's a tradition that is increasingly being called critical phenomenology, where it's a group of people who are like, look, the best sort of phenomenological work has to be multi multi-methodological. So you need to combine, for example, intellectual history with your phenomenological analyses, or you need to combine genealogy or maybe qualitative sociology, pick whatever your favorite thing is. And because I also just love interdisciplinary work, period, I think it almost, when done well, almost always ends up being richer than solo disciplinary work Aside from the fact that I I think that in general, I think that in this case, it is really, really helpful to people who are working inside of that tradition. And I kind of did that. I mean, in some ways, the theory chapters are like very much not phenomenology chapters. Right. And so I kind of show in a certain sense, I'm showing actually the contrast in the book between what phenomenology can offer and what it can't really do necessarily very well.
0: Awesome. Well, what are some of the things that you're working on now?
1: I'm working on too many things. I think that that's the, the honest answer. Uh, let me mention what I'm most excited about at the, at the moment. Uh, I was very grateful, uh, to have, uh, gotten a Greenwall, um, faculty award. And what this does is it, uh, pays for half of my time over the next three years to do research on a, on a specific project. And this project is entitled addressing the roots of disability health disparities. And, like actual scientific or social scientific projects that require funding, you have to have a hypothesis you know that you do not know the answer to yet. And they're they're providing you um, support in order to test the hypothesis. And my hypothesis is that many of the disability health disparities that we find in clinical medicine and also at the level of public health, that part of the problem is not merely Questions of implicit bias, not merely questions of, let's say, economic, uh, existing economic disparities or something like this, but part of the problem is actually conceptual. And that the ways in which disability is conceptualized, sometimes being treated as a monolith, you know, no qualifier, just Oh, here we have stats on disabled people. Full stop. Sometimes being treated in a very granular manner. You know, severely something 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 something. That the what's going on partially is that we don't have an appropriately nuanced conceptual. I, I was going to say taxonomy, but that that almost seems too static. A dynamic taxonomy. I don't know. Can taxonomies be dynamic? Um, nonetheless. Um, that's the hypothesis, and I'm getting, I'm starting to dig into that research, including a lit review of you know everything that's ever been written on disability and quality of life, and I'm very excited to see where this goes. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but I'm very excited. I get the chance to dig in and see if it's true that part of the problem here is actually a conceptual problem, and maybe we can use some of the unique tools from philosophy uh, to jump in and say, hey. This is how we should be conceptualizing X, Y, or Z in these situations, and if we do it that way, it's going to be better for people. So we'll see what happens.
0: Well, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to, to, you know, four or five years down the road, read some of some of your findings related to that. Um,
1: I, I look forward to reading them and figuring them out myself. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah that, that hopefully, you know, four or five years from now, we're having another conversation. Um, uh, whatever new publication you have, um, that'd be so. delightful. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, Joel, thank you again for spending some time with me and the listeners of the New Books Network. Um, and for everyone who's listening, I really highly encourage you to check out uh, the complete um, text of Joel's book, uh, *The Life Worth Living: Disability, Pain, and Morality*. Um, excellent, excellent read. Um, I. Uh, this is just sharing a little bit, but when I sat down to read it, I was, I was supposed to be doing my own writing on my dissertation. And I was like, I'm going to procrastinate by reading something new. Um, <laughs> and and it, I finished it within an afternoon. It was, it was an excellent, oh, wow. like, excellent read. So highly Very excellent. Read
1: <laughs> thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll, we'll see you all next time.
1: Take care.